0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer, archivist and publisher. It is Jerry Hornez, who I spoke to very recently. To find out more about life, love, poetry, and everything else. But he is, um, he put a book together quite recently called The Curious Chronicles of Villay Nelcotte, which is a story about a particular house mansion on the south, in the south of France, which was um, built in the late 1800s, still standing today, but during the very early 1970s was leased by Keith Richards, and that's where the Roland Stones lived, and recorded Exile on Main Street. So this is the interview. After, um, just to say a little bit of background, Jerry had an exhibition in Paris at the end of 2021, which I was talking about, and also about the photographer who had spent a bit, bit of time with the Roland Stones during Exile, which is Dominic Tao. So um, we'll find out more about those things, and much more, but anyway, that's where the introduction of this interview comes from so um anyway Jerry, take it away.
1: yeah, it was uh, about a year ago uh, and the uh the uh, Tarle exhibition for he called it la villa in French, so the house or the villa it uh, he um he released a set of sort of new photos or outtakes from the seventy one photos. And uh, had a, a wonderful book out, a uh, photo book. So my book, which is more or less a written account of the of the times, uh, fit perfectly in with that.
0: Yes. So who was that photographer? Uh,
1: Dominique Carrelet. right, the French photographer who uh, who visited uh, Rolling Stones at the in 1971 as they were recording uh, tracks for Excel on Main Street*.
0: Yes, and that's the book that I think it came out on... Was it some publishing company? Like, was it Genius Publishing? And then it was like a £1,000, and now it's...
1: Yeah, originally it was a Genesis uh, thing. Uh, But at some point, I think Dominic himself wanted to partake in the the interest, and he released his own sort of take on it. Uh, And that's why he needed to include a lot of outtakes and, and... stuff which not only uh, reinvigorated the interest in his wonderful photography but also sort of gave it a, a new push
0: yes it's interesting isn't it because 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 i i was always fascinated with those set of pictures that he did but it's never been very easy to see or get them and um but then i i he hasn't been one of those, because I've done a lot of interviews with photographers over the years, and they've done that kind of moment where they, you know, like Mick Rock or Kevin Cummins and people like that, and then they've kind of gone on to a career of, you know, like photography. But he's he's yeah. kind of disappeared a bit. Did he keep in with photography, or was that kind of just a side project?
1: You know, he, he, back then he was 23 years old. And he was invited on the uh, 71 tour of England, uh, the so-called Goodbye to Britain tour that the Rolling Stones had just prior to uh, going to France. By then, he had also visited uh, the rock and roll circus sessions and and all that in in 68. Uh, But by the time the Stones relocated to France, he was invited to stay for several months at the uh, house of Keith Richards called Villa Nellcôte and he did that brilliantly you know he used some of the most um, in my mind extraordinary rock and roll photography uh, because he, he he has a very discreet sort of persona so he sort of blends in and uh, through those photographs uh, you you see the the really the private side of of uh, Keith Richards and Anita Pallenberg's life at Villa and also at some point they start recording the Exile album in the basement of that house. So he sort of partakes in those sessions as well, photography and why some yeah.
0: Yes, it's amazing. So look, I know that's it's it's extraordinary. But but,
1: but 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 then he he sort of stopped doing that, and that's the interesting part, which <laughs> leads me back to your question. He he never did. Uh, sort of a long uh, photography career. He went on to work in a laboratory, I I mean, photo laboratory, and uh, stuck with that job for for a long time, but never sort of emerged with a totally new set of uh, photos. So he, he became somewhat of an enigma, you know. And when the Genesis book was released in 2001, which was called Exile, a uh, very high-value, high-production sort of book. Uh, that was the first time his photographs were collected. And when I released my book, I really wanted to bring sort of his pictures into the mix, but not only uh, address those pictures. It, it had to be something new because people knew his work, so he was one of the participants.
0: Yes. No. God, it's it's amazing, and it does add obviously to this incredible work. So, look, coming to you to the book that you have brought out and published. For, I think last year, but now it's still available, "The Curious Chronicles of Villa and So, what was your interest and um, reason for wanting to spend a huge amount of your life and time researching this? How? What was your entry point to this this project?
1: Well, I guess. I'm the type of person who organizes my reality around music. <laughs> so whenever I go anywhere, for instance, I go to New York. I spend a substantial uh, time of uh, amount of time visiting places of musical significance. I mean, record studios, places where record covers has been shot, stuff like that. So- now clock was always on my radar so when i went to the french rivera and i had to seek this place where my favorite record had been conceived uh and i searched a long time for the place because this was in the pre-internet days you know <laughs> nobody knew where anything was back then so when i finally uh found the place it was really the start of a sort of love affair that has has never ended. I still adore that place. And yes. uh, so, so so. I mean, the stones were the reason why I began this thing. But the the point that I'm being asked a lot is, uh, the question is that, why didn't you then write a book about the stones? Because my published book is not only about the stones, it's about the villa itself. I felt there had never been a Sort of a, a deep dive into the story of that place and how di- did it how did it uh, uh, affect the group and the record. Um, so it all began with the greatest rock and roll band, uh, the Rolling Stones.
0: Yes, in 1971. So were you? Had you because I, I was born nineteen sixty four, so my musical entry really was the early seventies. At that time, in the UK, it was kind of glam rock of you know Sweet and Slade and T Rex, and luckily David Bowie yeah. was my first single and first love. So, did you find the Stones kind of when they happened, or did you, a bit like me, have <clears> to go back and discover some of these bands and these albums?
1: Oh, yeah, I definitely had to go go back in time. I was born in 72, so by the time I, I got into the Stones, they, this was the 1980s. And, but I sort of felt it was symbolic that the record was uh, released in 72, the, the year that I was born. And um, I guess that's why I became so curious about this thing. I mean, the Stones had a large... Uh, discography but um but exile always maintained my sort of <laughs> my my really the focus of my interest and uh, I guess the the mythical basement where the stones had recorded this album uh was the focus of my intense research because I felt that the sound of exile was largely the sound of this place of nelcotts um so so i mean this uh, yeah I, I i i really felt that it was the stones has always been the beginning and end of the project but but in the middle I, I did a lot of detours to to sort of flesh out the story
0: yes so with this this amazing almost like a stately home in the south of france did you then, I mean, with the research and just to go back to that time when it was actually mm-hmm. built and, and designed, had there been much information about it or were you suddenly finding yourself thinking, God, this is this is going to be quite a project because there's very little about it anywhere. And obviously, you know, I, I know from... Yeah, in in the UK, I mean we're obsessed with stately homes and old things and kings and queens, aren't we? So but did you, you know, so when you started to look at this as a project and had to go back to the late 1800s, what, yeah, basically was there much that you could find or did you have to start to really root around in archives and libraries?
1: Oh, I definitely, I definitely had to to go to the archives. It, it's it's interesting what you're saying because in in France they it has been a lot of interest in the what you call stately homes or the private homes of the Rivera, but it's it's never been this kind of in depth look at it. So I was. Um, So what I began with was the photographs of this French photographer, Dominique Tallet. And I basically just took all the photographs I had and I mapped them out and, and sort of created floor plans of the villa itself from the beginning, from those photographs. So I had to look at every single photograph and sort of map the doors and the roof and the tiles and whatever and figure out how the villa had been built because there was no... There was no architectural plans and, and anywhere. There was no names of who had ever owned this thing. So I had to begin somewhere, and by doing that, I sort of gave myself a visual of how the place looked because it's still a private home. You cannot, you, basically, you, you can never access it at, at any point in history. So there has never been a museum there. It has never been really for rent at, at the type of uh, scale that we are talking about and um, just for the rich folks and uh, so I really had to go to the archives to discover how this place had come to be and what what I discovered was that I this this story took me one hundred and twenty years back in time um, to the story of the man who had built the villa. I uh, I found one name, and that sort of journey took me to Montpellier in the south of France, uh, close to Marseille. And uh, during the research of that first owner, uh, um, I discovered all the fascinating stories about Nerkat. Uh There was, uh, there was uh, this story about the first owner who had been a wine producer, who had made the villa available for his Russian friends. Uh, the aristocracy travelling to the riviera in the around the turn of the century uh, 1902 right and uh, yeah and he had brought all these friends to entertain them and party with them sort of in an attempt to to live the the rich man's life and um so so that sort of kicked everything uh, off i i started to research the the first first British uh, people coming down to the Riviera, uh, and how they had really molded the Riviera into what we see today with the palms, the the lawns and everything. All the greenery we attached to the image of the Riviera was really important stuff. Uh, So these rich people brought whatever they wanted to the Riviera and they built these grand homes. And they entertained and dined during the winter season, and then they returned to North Europe or Russia or wherever they wanted. And um, this story, sort of, when I when I sort of started to paint this canvas, it uh, really took me in another direction than you know the uh, the uh, yes. the stone story.
0: Well, well, just be, but but just going, just holding that point, because this is the late eighteen hundreds. So in the UK, and yeah. I guess this is kind of all over the world, in Europe. Um, we had the this was the Industrial Revolution, which had started in the sort of 1820s, twenties, eighteen thirties. I guess things started to move. You know, yeah. they kind of the cities started to expand. Mm-hmm. You know, there was railways, canals, kind of factories the night shift, which would have all been very kind of like a new thing in that time. And, you know, changing of, you know, politics and education and sort of, you know, rights. But um, what was was the general vibe in France at that time? Was, Was it kind of being mirrored elsewhere across the channel from, you know, like what we were experiencing in the UK to what was happening elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Great Britain were really forward thinking when it comes to came to the Industrial Revolution. I think the French were a little bit behind there. And, and specifically, the south of France was really removed from the central powers in Paris. So there was this uh, belt of mountains that really had to be... Uh, <laughs> they had to build a railway in order to attract the rich people um, to coming to to the Riviera when when the railway was built and extended down to Nice in uh, the 1860s, that was really when the Napoleon and uh, the uh, Russian uh, Tsar and the German uh, Archdukes and so on began to emerge, and that brought the rich people with them, and that brought the uh, houses to them. The house was built, and all these sort of um, the privileged, rich, and eccentric made the pilgrimage to the French Riviera for health or hedonistic reasons. And you know, among the marble palaces and the sand-colored old buildings, royalty and artists could uh, find inspiration and leisure pursuits all winter long. And you know, sort of the exclusive clientele. uh, on the Rivera explains how this place that I was uh, falling in love with, Villa Nelcott, could become the common denominator that uh, connects this whole series of events that I, I eventually discovered. And and I guess this was my original pitch that that Nelcott, you know, one of the owners, ran the fundraising campaign of the Statue of Liberty. Another survived the Titanic disaster, and a third worked for political unity uh, in Europe long before the EC became, <laughs> you know, a, a word. So, <laughs> so, but but I guess bringing it all back home, uh, had it not been for the Rolling Stones, the connection between these stories had never been known, um, because it's the Bohemian, Bohemian recording session for Exile on Main Street. In '71, that uh, that means that Nellcott is is known today. And um, I don't know if you you are aware of this, but but in in the United States, a, a restaurant is um, sort of molded from the interior of Villa Nellcott. So the restaurant is called Nellcott, and the interior is exactly a sort of a replica uh, in Napa Valley in California. A wine is produced that sort of quote gets its inspiration from Nolcott, and uh, a hip Swedish perfume is designed to smell like Nolcott's garden. So, so when you when you sort of mix all those impressions together, you, you sort of get this get this idea of what no Cut is. And, but the question I asked myself was, why is it so occurring? And what's the story behind the place? And, uh, you know, yeah.
0: Well, it's, well, it was quite, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I find all these things fascinating and interesting. And I have to say that um, I suppose recently there's been a lot of people sort of digging down to sort of find these kind of artefacts from sort of, I suppose, to do with popular culture and basically, let's face it, music. Because last year yeah. we had um the film with the 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 beatles you know their eight hour kind of film about let it let it be and then there's been people who've been I did an interview with a director of a who did a film about a British band called Rima Rima who only lasted like 12 months and only released one EP but was very influential and he was like (laughs) I've really got to make a film about this because it's such a uh, fascinating album and fascinating group so people do love to research stuff I've realized but now Cox quite interesting because obviously it, it you know, and and as as somebody doing the research, you must have found it interesting because it's definitely there's definitely different chapters that happen throughout the 1900s, aren't there? Because obviously, you know, we have the early, you know, the pre First World War, then First World War. There's a bit of peace, and then the Second World War. So there is a there is a legacy there as well, isn't there? So that's that kind of oh, adds
1: absolutely a,
0: adds a certain mystique, which is a bit interesting. Um, yeah. So how yeah, does I, 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 yeah. I was going to say, how does it change then? Because because the one thing that's very key, well, one of the key bits to this, is that with people going to the south of France to get some winter sun, I mean, most people at that time were really poor and were just struggling to make ends meet. And they didn't even have, I mean, they might have had Christmas day off, but they didn't go and do winter sun. So that class division at that time was absolutely enormous, wasn't it? Because working class people didn't really have a holiday and they hardly had any sort of life expectancy. So it was very much a sort of rich person's playground, wasn't it?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Most definitely. The, you know, when the when the British came down in the middle of the 19th century, they built this Promenade Anglais, which is the main promenade in, in this. You've probably seen it. And it's mirrored all across the, the French Rivera. They have the miniature versions of this. And the British also built their churches and their libraries and, and so on. So they they sort of brought their culture with them. Even though there were these great uh, class differences, we also have to remember that that all the locals were given jobs to enter to, to to help these people as as staff in these great villas and so on. And um, as I started to research this uh, this book, I came very close to the, for instance, inhabitants of Villefranche-sur-Mer, where the uh, where villa is located. That's that's between Nice and Monaco on the stretch, uh, that's where Villa is situated. And and all those people, and a lot of them, told me how their grandfathers and parents had worked in these different places, the hotels, the restaurants, the, the villas as staff, as drivers, as whatever. So even though they sort of <laughs> I guess detested a bit this sort of development along the era, Because of the rich folks coming and um, just entertaining, dining, staying, playing on the casinos, you know, doing their rituals, uh, and then just leaving, they still maintain this uh, balanced fascination for them as well. So um, even when I visited Villefranche last month, uh, talking about this book and uh, presenting it to the, the locals there. They have uh, they're really opinionated about the um, their story uh, in the, in in Villefranche and specifically about the Stones' story because uh, it was not uh, Stones were not particularly well received there at all and there there really is a lot of grievance there about the Rolling Stones' stay in, in in Villefranche still.
0: Oh blimey, That's that they're hanging on to that one a little bit, aren't they? But it's kind of interesting because my Oh
1: yeah, definitely.
0: Because my grandparents We were both sadly passed, but they both worked, I think it was called in service. So they were, they worked for the aristocracy in, it wasn't a huge estate, but it was kind of, you know, a big house. And my grandmother would have worked in the kitchens and housekeeper. My, the grandfather would have worked in the gardens and they would have had a little cottage somewhere on the estate to do this. But they, that was kind of where they, they grew up. And bizarrely, I think people quite I wouldn't, I, I don't know, but I'm making it, I'm slightly making this up, aren't I? But I think they quite enjoyed that kind of, they respected what they had and they felt grateful for it in, in, in during that time, even though I look back and think, my God, that's outrageous. It, they they kind of enjoyed, you know, the, again, I don't know about the word enjoy, but they, you know, they respected the church, they respected the king or the queen and they respected you know the lines of like the rulers and the underclass and there was and people didn't i mean they would have questioned it to a bit but i mean we've never had a revolution in this country so yeah. let's face it we we went along with it basically didn't we so that's my theory yeah, so but like...
1: they, it, it created an uh, opportunity for, for your grandparents to have work, you know, for earning money. And I guess that's what we're talking about. Villefranche, uh, this place where Villanel Cotte is situated. It used to be, a, it, it's this gorgeous bay, a sort of microclimate where banana <laughs> banana trees are able to grow. And you have this mimosa and, and orange trees and all this. It's a beautiful place, you know that we that we're talking about and um uh, but this place used to be uh driven by by fishing by olives and olive oil so we had all these mills along the hillsides where they, they made the the oil My God, that's and such an they,
0: exotic diet isn't it
1: <laughs> yeah and and then suddenly this this train comes to the river in the 1860s and bring with them all these people, and you have this cruise ship, or not cruise ships, but uh, you know, boats, large boats that use the bay as a, as a place for docking to bring passengers throughout the Mediterranean because Villefranche also uh, has the deepest uh, harbor in the whole of uh, the Mediterranean. So you will see, even to this day, you will see military ships and, and cruise ships in the bay itself. It's a yes. gorgeous place, um, really.
0: So going back to 1940, the the, the Second World <laughs> War. So what's yeah. what, what happens with both France and Nellcott at this stage?
1: Well, I, I have to tell you that uh, this this whole project was really based on the stones. But as I went back 120 years to sort of pick up the pace along along which, uh, which owner had owned the villa in which period, I discovered there was really a lot of phases to the development of this villa. There was the, the early years of the French ownership, uh, the guy who built the villa. It was the second phase with the American millionaire Martha Brulator, who, whose husband worked on the Statue of Liberty. There was the third phase, which uh, brought the Titanic story to the forefront. Uh, and during which War 1 also uh, took place. And all these eras brought with them a lot of documentation. One of the the first documents that I actually um, received was the Journal of the Owners from the First World War. And uh, it really spoke about how the, the Riviera had changed its face during these years uh, the, of the First World War. But you you know that the First World War took place in the north of France. It never yes. actually, there was no action down south. So, so the south was mainly used as a recreation place. All the hotels were made into hospitals and so on. Uh, but by the time we come to the Second World War, uh, um, the Germans, you know, occupied France in 1940. I come from Norway. So unlike Norway, which was completely occupied by the German forces, French, the French territory was split in two in 1940. So it had the occupied north and the unoccupied south. You probably know this, but...
0: I only know your book, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but this is this is uh, this is quite important because when we discuss the the actions at culture in World War II, we have to actually zone in the, on the time frame because. Until 1942, it was still a Vichy government uh, era-driven era, and then the Italian army came in in 42 to 43, and then the Germans arrived in late 1943, and they were thrown out in, uh, in September, August uh, 44. So we really um, we really focus our, our attention on 11 months. And uh, to, in which the Germans occupied uh, the south of France, and um, a lot of rumors have been going on about Nelcott, and Nalcot being a Gestapo headquarters and so on. And um, reason for talking about all this documentation that uh, that I compiled was that. The true story of Villanelkot during World War and the sort of Nazi link doesn't really have to do with the Germans occupying uh, the south of France, I believe. Because the, um, the, the paperwork that I, I discovered uh, really told a very different story. I, I, s- I stayed a long time in the German military archives. That's in Eiburg in the south of um, Germany. And mm-hmm. I looked for any documentation that could prove that the Germans uh, had any headquarter or any sort of um, um, central at, at Nelkot, and I did not find anything. I mean, I had a researcher there working from day and night and, and nothing was, uh, was ever discovered, uh, but... Um, but this is a very this 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 story about the Germans in in Villefranche in World War Two is a very tricky situation actually because it's a delicate subject matter for for those present uh, and um, um, all the villas along the coast were were sort of uh, in so called forbidden zone. It was a uh, a place where. None of the owners could stay, so Nelkot was vacant throughout mm-hmm. the whole um, the whole uh, um, the whole war. And uh, when it was vacant, the Germans moved uh, around in the gardens and shot the marble statues pieces and threw hand grenades into the uh, windows and so on, so that a lot of villas was uh, were, um, damaged, but Nelkot somehow remained intact uh but the source of the rumor about nelcott being a gestapo headquarter that that really began with the rolling stones in the 1970s mm-hmm. uh, and it's sort of a backward yeah it's a, sort of a backward story because it starts with the stones saying that you know yeah we, re- we recorded this album in the south of france in a former gestapo headquarters, which really makes it sound like the most the sinister story ever. Um, and they're not exactly wrong by saying so, uh, because apparently Anita Pallenberg and Keith Richard had found some swastikas engraved in the basement heater or something. Um, of course, none of the owners that I've been in contact with have ever seen this. <laughs> so it's it's a bit it's a bit strange and um and i mean they uh, the 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 housekeepers also confirmed that they were never there so it's sort of one of these rumors that the stones have uh, i guess compiled over the years and, and so it's it, it has become the truth yes um, but, but what's what's interesting yeah, but the, the true story of the of this myth, I think, it concerns the family who rooted the villa out to the stones. So when Anita Panberry tells the story of, of Narkot being a Gestapo headquarter, I think she sort of messes everything up. Um uh, maybe because she, she sort of shortened the story somewhat or or perhaps she has misunderstood the concept. But um The the owner of the villa by the time the Rolling Stones arrives in 1971 was a German-Swiss couple. And the husband in that couple, the man in that couple, uh, used to work for the German Wehrmacht during World War II. And he also had the uh, German uh, industrial complex called Krupp, uh, Germany's giant armaments manufacturer on his client list. Uh, I mean, the tanks, the armor, the rifles, all that that was produced for the Nazis were um, were produced uh, by, among others, Krupp. And uh, when, <laughs> when the war was over, this uh, Swiss man uh, was a very rich man. And he I suspect he bought um uh, with the profit uh by which he had earned during World War II. So evil tongues may say he was a German collaborator and that uh Nelkot was bought with the war profit, and uh that he perhaps brought some um some things with him from Switzerland to Nelcot, which was sort of a Nazi um. Memo- memorable, <laughs> So <laughs> yes. I guess it's, yeah. So I guess it's, uh, it's a very um tricky um, tricky story. Uh, but I think the the real link, the um, uh, all these rumors about uh, the being a Nazi headquarters, it's not really true. But it has to do with the owner of No uh, during the time which uh, the Rolling Stones stayed there.
0: Right. That all makes more sense. And also, to put a little bit of context, I mean, this is when the Stones get, get there. This is the early 1970s. Life is quite different at this stage, isn't there? Where, you know, musicians are, especially in the 70s, are wanting to appear on the dark side of life. There's a lot of obsession with people like, you know, Crowley, isn't there? Alistair Crowley, and then there was kind of flirtation, you know, with certain people with the the right, but not in a, yes, just playing with certain ideas and images. And also there's an awful lot more, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll was much more of a thing to be kind of proud about. There was the kind of, the yeah. world of the, there was the world of the groupie. There was this kind of, you know, at that time, it was a very different world than it is now. I mean, you couldn't really, I mean, most of our rock stars, um, would be in prison really now wouldn't they for some of the behavior they had in the 70s for sort of some of the things they got up to you know and um, they could have had an amazing supergroup in some of those prisons because there was kind of a lot of underage women <laughs> hanging about so you know it's a little bit of a tricky one so I think in a way playing with certain ideas and images during that period you know you have to put a little bit of a context on it and just say well It was different back then. So, look, just going slightly fast forward to the the 70s, this is the Rolling Stones who had been around since 62, 63 period and had made some of the classic albums. And then, obviously, this is the period of when Brian Jones had passed away. Mick Taylor was now on guitar. And they were in a particularly fertile period of their recording world, weren't they? This was their kind of glory period, really, before Ronnie Wood appears. So what oh, yeah. is it what is it that they um why did they have to or want to go to the south of france to record and not be in the uk
1: Well the background for this whole story is about is is really for tax reasons I mean uh the rolling stones had a manager who had skimmed off their income so by the time they discovered that they had no money it was too late and they had not Paid any taxes of any of their profits, so in order to pay the back taxes uh, of all the money they had earned, they uh, they needed to go abroad to earn their money and to pay the taxes back in England. It's a matter of um, I think uh, Mick Jagger, sometime in 1968, uh, discovered that uh, he earned m- almost nothing. And he couldn't really understand why he didn't earn anything. I mean, his record sold. Uh, They went on tour. (laughs) They were on tour uh, almost uh, all the time. Uh, But he never had any money. So uh, he looked into all all his accounts and discovered that the money he had received from his manager uh, was really just a sliver of what he should earn but also that his taxes had not been paid. So uh, in order to pay back what they owed to the inland revenue, they really had to move abroad, earn their money there, and you know, pay them back to England. And you have to remember that back then uh, the taxes were so high on the, on, on high income I mean, we were. I think we were talking in the eighties, eighty percent or something. Yes, I got the impression it was kind of or something. Like that. It yeah. was
0: kind of kind of crazy high. I think the UK was slightly <laughs> bank. The UK was slightly bankrupt at that stage, wasn't he as well? So, um,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> I think the things weren't looking particularly good. Yeah, for you, us.
1: Yeah, you remember the prime minister, but I, I mean, I mean, imagine that you you earn a uh, hundred quid and you have to pay eighty of them in tax. Uh, how on earth are you going to be able to pay back any tax then that you owe? So, yeah, they, they stroke a deal with um, the, the, the part of France, which is called alpes maritime or Nice and, and all those big cities are located. And they, and they stuck with that deal, uh, moved to France, made money there and, taxes back the The important thing about this is I mean we call this era the exile on Main Street era I mean they, they moved to France and, and created songs for exile on Main Street but the, the, the fact of the matter is that they are still technically speaking in exile 50 years later so when they moved out of Britain back then they basically never moved back home as as everybody probably knows even though you move abroad you could still stay in, in any country in Britain or, or Norwegian citizens can stay in in Norway a specific amount of days each year even though you pay taxes to another country so yes. I think um, I think the stones are based in the, the Dutch until or something somewhere they have their headquarters in, in Amsterdam and I think they're Lead a very happy life these days. I guess much better than back then.
0: <laughs> yes, but unfortunately, the recording isn't as good as it um, was back then. So when they—that's so <laughs> your they...
1: opinion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it's so controversial, isn't it? I don't. I don't think you can beat those kind of sticky fingers, exile on Main Street, let it bleed. Oh, uh, yeah.
1: It's I, a, I, I totally agree. It's it's a fabulous string of records. I mean. I mean, uh, who could?
0: Yes, absolutely. So when when Keith and um, Anita went down there, was there was did they have that plan, or were they just sort of escaping, kind of the UK and um, dealing with their drug habit?
1: What do you mean? Uh, which plan?
0: Well, was it the plan then to go and record an album down in Nelcott? Was was were they? Was that oh, their? Yuck. So they went I down. The...
1: I I guess at the I, I guess at the time they they had no idea the exile would last so long. I think they did it year by year, in the at least in the beginning. But it was no it, it wasn't a, a sort of a weekend in in Barbados they were planning, you know. They really moved to France with all that it meant in terms of uh, practical things like visas and nurses and doctors and dentists and, and, you know, houses. And you had to move not only the rock stars themselves, but also the families and their nannies. And, and you know, everything had to be brought down to the Rivera. And that's where a, a place like Nelcott, uh really becomes what it is, because just as Keith's hotel room had traditionally been the point of gravity on stone tours in the past, Nelkot becomes this sort of headquarter on the French Riviera because it's only Keith Richards and his family who lives at Villa Nelkot. The other members lives everywhere else along the, uh, along the river, uh, the Riviera. So Nelkot is a very large villa. It's situated on top of a lime cliff limestone cliff looking out on the Mediterranean. So it's extremely lush, you know, it has palms and sort of a secluded little beach. And the facade is neoclassical, several floors. It has this great wrought iron gate, which is really impressive. And when it opens up in 1971, you look directly onto a sort of a jungle, exotic jungle with these extremely rare trees and, and, and fruits and, and whatnot. So so the 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 place itself is a headquarter and it's extremely luxurious even though it's a bit run down in the 70s. And that's really the the sort of the timeline that I, I draw up in the book is how did it when was it built, who renovated it, who lived there, all these eccentric people before the Stones. But by the time the Stones arrives, it's really a rock star paradise because it's very secluded. You cannot see the villa itself from the street and so on. And and all these sort of factors play part when it's decided that, that Nelkot should be the recording place for the new album. You know, and what what uh, most people know today is that just as we we talked about, you know, Beggar's Banquet and, and, and Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers and Exile, they all sort of are are molded sort of together. In reality, it's it's just sessions upon sessions and tours and sessions and everything just happens in this crazy tempo. So by the time the stones relocate to France, they really have a lot of Um, tapes uh, in their backpack as well. So they bring a lot of songs to France that they begin to rework or re-record and then they record all these tracks from the ground up. I mean, new tracks that they they sort of write in France and they then eventually after the French escape in, in late 71 they move on to the United States and even rework some of the songs there so excellent Main Street as a project is extremely long you know it it's and it encompasses so much in terms of honeymoons of holidays of fist fights of drug busts of pregnancies you know everything happens at the Rivera or during the project at atnalcut so it's really it's, Nelcap, in in that sort of term is a is a hotel that offers extravagant hospitalities, uh, and it uh, it's an administrative office where Joe Bergman and all the executives in the Rolling Stones administration comes and hold business meetings, and it's also a factory where the music is sort of created. So it's a it's sort of powerhouse and and extremely decadent one. <laughs>
0: Yes. Well, no, there is there is a beauty, beautiful quality to to both the design of the book and the history, but then the Rolling Stones period, because they all got that age where they've still got their youthful looks, but they can be quite rugged, and they're all walking around in shorts and T-shirts and bare chests, riding motorbikes and, you know, just playing guitar. And there's all these people that appear like Graham Parsons and Nicky Hopkins and... Uh, various other sort of crew. So so it does have a decadent beauty, but at the same time, even though there is obviously a bit of a drug thing going on, people haven't got damaged by that period of drug taking, which then kind of deadens the senses and deadens the creativity a little bit then which often kills people's kind of work later on in life because it's like they're not so so, so in a way the stars have kind of lined up beautifully for this moment and and it's so beautifully captured with the photographs that uh, dominic Take at that stage of all these kind of guys just lounging around with their girlfriends who have still got all their looks and not have to worry about anything, oh, so it's yeah. and young children, yeah. so it is it is stunning seeing those photographs alongside this amazing stately home in the south of France.
1: yeah, I mean, I mean i I talked to so many for this book it was it was really my my aim because I know this story very well. The, the recording of Excel in, on the Rivera. So I, I, I found out very early that I did not in any way want to repeat that story. I, I didn't want to just bring all those quotes from all the books together and write my own you know, resume of that. I needed fresh sources, so I tracked down I think 21 of those who were present at the villa during the recording, in addition to all the families who had owned the villa. So families, the previous families sort of brought all the journals and maps and documents and photographs of of the whole thing from 1899 up to 71. And then Dominique Tarlet added the, the the photographs from 71. But what the what all the interviews sort of gave me was this really Interesting angle on the Stones' stay at the Riviera. Georgia Bergman ran the Stones' office, and she contributed all the uh, her diaries and journals of the era, yeah. or at least those sections that were not private. You know, so so she really gave the timeline of how everything came together, and uh, and what was really interesting was talking about. Uh, the mem- talking to the kids, you know, Charlie Weber, Jake Weaver and and Marlon Richards were all kids back then. They were one and a half. They were seven or eight. Um, and the two brothers, the um, the, uh, the Charlie and Jake Weber, they were sort of, I think they like to say, or they were, I guess, drug mules. It's a horrendous thing to... <laughs> It's a horrendous story to retell these days, but I guess it's a, it's a it's a very interesting story coming from Charlie Weber and in a, in a recent book about you know his his life and as uh, sort of a drug mule at Nalco, coming down there with cocaine strapped to their backs and and I mean imagine that today, and you have uh, people like um, Jake Weber uh, and sort of a. His brother, an established Hollywood actor today, he was seven or eight. And, and he told me, you know, we, we came to this illuminous place. You know, Nelkot was completely white. And, and I remember Keith Richards so well. He was the charismatic leader and everyone wanted to be around him at Nelkot. was everything. He, he was sort of the piper, and I remember watching him and listening because he was the alpha male that everyone wanted to be around. So it was sort of a, this 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 place, uh, Nelcott became this place where not only the stones were, but the um, all the rock stars came to party as well. John Lennon came famously uh, one afternoon, drank a bottle of wine, puked on the carpet, and left. So it was this <laughs> it was this beautiful hangers-on uh, uh, on place. Um, but I guess um the Nelcott story has a lot of layers um uh and I guess what I wanted to 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 find out ultimately with this book was was the fact that it's a place that's surrounded by so much mystery and myths. Uh, so if I could, my small contribution would be to sort of not tell necessarily the truth because the truth is, um, your truth is probably very different to my truth. But I wanted to tell it as objectively true as possible, you know, through documentation and through photographs about what was uh, probably happening there back then. And um, yes. I think the the, the basement of Nalca is completely mythical you know in terms of uh, foreign music nerd like me think about how they recorded that album in this moldy basement that's you know as uh, uh, that's as close to a dream as you come
0: yes and unfortunately you you haven't managed to get into the Nelcot to see this place have you you've never been able to walk in there and sort of walk around it i
1: have to tell you yeah i have to tell you something david when i released this book i brought it with me and i called the bell um, i mean i mean i'm i mean i just rang the bell on on Melcott. i brought a couple of books and i rang the bell and it's completely true i had not been inside Nelcott because this book was sort of my entryway into the in, in, into the place. As I as I told you, this place has always been a private residence, so nobody can just ring the bell and go into the <laughs> into the house. So I wrapped up a couple of books in DHL wrapper, you know, the sort of DHL yellow thing, and I rang the bell and said it was uh, I had a delivery for the owner of Nelcott, and the the guard came out. And uh, I told him that, you know, this is the book for uh, the Russian owner, which presently owns uh, this magnificent place. And uh, we talked for maybe 15 minutes or so, and then I was invited in. So finally, after, I I don't know, 30 years or something, I uh, was able to walk around uh, on the property. And it was, I mean, you, you probably understand how important this was for me. It was like having a pit ticket to a Rolling Stones show, uh, but in the sense that I had a pit ticket to Geranelkot.
0: Right. So you managed to sort of go around and get the whole vibe of the place and find yeah. the mythical basement. And And <laughs> did it live up to your kind of experience? Because obviously, you know, one... I mean, because having gone to places, you kind of feel like you're adding a lot of narrative to stuff and you're wondering if it really what that relationship's like. So what was it like for you to walk around and see the places that you know the photographs of?
1: I think, uh, well, I know the place so well. So it was no surprise in the sense of what I was experiencing, but with just the experience itself that was, you know, magnificent. And I think the, the people that I met there were more surprised than anyone by the sort of level of nerdy details that I knew, because I, you know, asked about all sorts of things that... They, I, I think they wondered why I knew all these things about, you know, every plant and every tile that we walked past. And I told them, oh, really, this is the original from 1921. Did you know that? And they looked at me as if I were crazy. Yes. <laughs> Understandably.
0: They probably thought it was, culture... it was
1: a great experience.
0: Yeah. Yes. And the basement where the recordings took place, was that...
1: The... The the basement today is uh, very very different from when the stones um, were there. Actually, this summer I talked to the woman who owned the villa after Keith Richards rented it, and she. This is some information that I'm um, going to expand on on a, in a later edition. But she told me how about all the stuff that she found after the stones were there and how she renovated the basement into what it is sort of today with a fitness studio and you have a spa and you have a billiard room and an office and, and all those things that sort of ruins everything for us nerds. um, I mean, music nerds, Uh, but, but the, the basement is very, very different today. And, but, but I, I don't really think that takes away the magic from the place because I, I am still able to, you know, see from my inner eye what I did back then in the 80s when I started this whole fascination for the basement of Nalcot, because what we knew back then was completely amazing it was completely untrue but the reason why i went down to Naukot in the first place to seek out this basement was that we heard it had been i mean we read in books and interviews from the stones that it it was a sort of a three floor three-story high basement, you know, it had been an ammunition depot or or, or something. And uh, there were secret uh, stairways from Nelkot into the Mediterranean. All sorts of rumors were uh, drifting about, about this place. And that's why I thought it was so exciting, you know, going there. Uh, but the basement itself, I have to say that it's pretty normal. <laughs> you know it's it's based on concrete and uh, and uh, bricks uh, it was constructed in 1899 so it's you know they used what they had and when the stones recorded exile it was really the most it was it was dark and damp and the reverb was horrendous it was a concrete bunker really mm. that the exile was uh, recorded in uh, but for me, um, I think that was sort of the accident in Art in Accident. When you when you create a masterpiece, you have this expression with which, uh, you know, it happened art by accident. And I think the basement of Nelcott, the horrendous um, uh, milieu down there, was really the accident waiting to happen, which created this wonderful masterpiece that is Excel on Main Street. It sounds really like no other Stones album, and it has to do with this basement. And I, I I know that a lot of people, you know, think that, you know, yeah, but a lot of the tracks on XL are not actually recorded at Melcott. How could that be? Well, what, what happened was that when the album uh, was completed in LA, they had this really clean sounding tracks from Olympic from 1970. And they had these really, you know, grungy sounding tracks from the basement in Alcott. And what Andy Johns, the engineer, had to do was to sort of make a mold where these tracks could uh, fit together. So he basically fiddled with the Olympic tracks so that they sort of fit with the Nelkot tracks he made them <laughs> basically <laughs> um, poorer sounding, although the separation and the tracks are much better than on Nelkot, you know, so they 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 um, they uh, sort of grew together in that final mix for exile. so you can't really hear what's uh, been recorded where unless you're a complete nerd like us, i guess
0: yes. and and interestingly, could you've 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 um, being with the, I suppose, the um, the owners, but what about the, and some of the people who were there, what about the actual members yeah. of the Rolling Stones, which are un- unbelievably and mostly still alive? I mean, did you ever contact yeah. or speak to any of them or at least give them a copy of the book?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, I gave a copy of the book and I got some really uh, nice feedback. Um, but I... I did not talk to them about the house itself. To be to be completely honest, I think that they could not have contributed that much to... I mean, they have spoken so many times about this. Yeah. And I think my angle was to sort of bring up something, some, bring something new to the table. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know... I'm I'm very humble about this, but but uh, I I think that um, for a future edition I would love to speak to them. Seeing now that uh, the story has become such a a hit in a way, but yes. uh, back then I I really thought that what if I bring all those uh, working on the project together instead of the band sort of bringing the entourage, the the publicists and the record executives and the engineers and so on, instead of the band themselves. So that's really what I tried.
0: Yes, I can understand that. I was just kind of also kind of interested or curious if any of them had photographs that you thought, God, that would also be quite a nice addition to Dominic's pictures as well, because obviously... (laughs) That's that's um, those little things or diary entries or little snippets, because I could imagine that could flush out another edition of the book.
1: Oh, yeah, that would be wonderful. There is, there is one other photograph uh, which I originally thought of bringing onto the project, but unfortunately could not, and that's um, the... Um, ad of keith richard called spanish tony he was the i guess the drug mule of keith richards in the in the late 60s also a sort of an assistant but he was also a pretty clever photographer so he has some photos of uh, no Cop that um, that was recently in london so i uh, people should seek him out
0: Oh blimey so what yeah. did you say yeah. you only found that out after the book or during the the writing and publishing of the book
1: The spanish tony thing
0: yeah when did yeah. you find when so did you spanish... meet? yeah spanish tony sounds yeah. a great name <laughs> <laughs>
1: spanish, <laughs> tony. spanish tony unfortunately uh, spanish tony unfortunately is not uh, longer with us but his family Night. Actually, yes, uh, a lovely bunch, um, and they were in on the project until I mean the twelfth hour because of a practical thing. I could not feature his uh, his uh, photographs in the book, which I mean they were in the book for such a long time in the in the pre-production, but uh, in the end I had to omit them due to some licensing issues. So in a in a future edition, uh, it will um, will fix that. A new oh, thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did you say another thing?
1: No, a new, a new thing.
0: Oh, new I thing. Another yeah, thing. Yeah, yes, no, it's yeah. no, it's it must be. <laughs> so, with the pro, just briefly, then. So, the project, which has been decades yeah. in the making, even though you've got the copy and it's finished, there is still going to be a little bit more work and projects coming out in the future with this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am a guy who always have projects. I mean, I'd I'd really love to expand on this volume, either bringing in some new blood. uh, And also I've started the work with um, the rest of the owners. I mean, those 30 or 40 years uh, after the after the stones stay. So I'm in touch with them. And doing all sorts of uh, wonderful uh, meetings to expand on this volume in the future. But I mean, this thing is a living, living thing. So you can't really rush it. I spent seven years working on this uh, book. And it's been such a wonderful thing, you know, meeting people. Uh, And I think what really attracted a lot of uh, contributors to this project is that it's I'm, I'm, I research my things very well, and I sort of meet with people, bringing them a lot of info. So whenever I meet the families or the stones entourage, I have my documentation in place, and I can present all these uh, fascinating stories about, you know, their own family members, for instance, who who live this or that life, and I can I can bring them material from international archives and of photographies or diaries and tell them stories about their grandmother or whatever and and that makes this exchange of info and exchange of um, photographs and and documentation really fascinating and and really and really so it's a take giving give and take process you know which is really fabulous
0: so just on that that ownership since fifty-seven, you had Walter Kelly, and then Olga Kelly. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. so, so it passed within a family who were Russian. So, is it Olga who who owns it now?
1: Well, <clears throat> I have to tell you that one of the really extraordinary things about the story of Villa is that. If we look at the narrative today, the beginning and the end of the story is really Russian. You see, the first owner built Villanelkot to attract his Russian friends who had who he had met uh, in studies in Germany. You know, he met the arch- archdukes and, and aristocracy from Russia in Germany, and he wanted a place on the Riviera to entertain them. So he built Villanelkot. Today, the villa is owned by a Russian industrialist. He's actually a very clever academic who, uh, during the early 90s, managed to gain a lot of uh, stocks in his um, steel mill in Russia, in Magnitogorsk. And uh, he eventually became chairman of that place. And he's become a tremendously rich, what we call a oligarch. Yes. So the the present owner is also Russian, you know. So what's <laughs> <laughs> philosophically speaking, I would say that you know the villa was built for the aristocracy, but it's currently owned by an oligarch. And and if you if you slightly interested in language, uh you might find it interesting that you know aristocracy is really a greek term which means that a society is led by the best now oligarchy is also a greek term which simply said could mean that a society is led by the few and that really says a lot about the development of the story of Nelkot, that from a society led by the best to the society led by the few. It sort of brings that whole Russian arc, that Russian story um, to a very sort of satisfying conclusion. I mean, uh, Villana cop today, is it's like you can't possibly go in there without an invitation or bringing, as I told you, the books to the gate and, and say, I've spent seven years on this project. Um, Blah blah blah, uh, it's 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 armed guards and everything, and this is really the New Riviera where Russian individuals and uh, Arabic individuals, you know, purchase these properties. But the Riviera, unfortunately, is it's it's playing ground as for were back then, also today. But but back then, in when Nalcoth was built in 1899, it was really uh, sort of a winter playground. Everybody came and stayed for months. Uh, today, you will probably see that most of the villas at the Riviera are vacant most of the year. So whenever you 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 stay in Villefranche and you look out on the wonderful peninsula like Cap Ferra, uh, during the, a summer night, you will see that most of the peninsula lies, it lies in complete darkness. There are nobody there, and nobody right. staying at their luxurious villas anymore.
0: Amazing! That is amazing, isn't it? Yes, I know. It's just probably the security systems must be incredible. So, so it's just so. Lastly, then, <laughs> I know, could you imagine you'd be shot on sight mm. not you? Um, so, I was, I was an indie kid in the eighties. And I did notice a yes. line, at the end, there is a light that never goes out. Is this reference in the Smiths <laughs> by any chance?
1: Oh, of course it is. It's a lovely track, isn't it? It is.
0: It is It is this song, isn't it? This charming man, there is a light that never goes out. These are classic songs. Because yeah. there is a line that you have when you visit it and you say, Nelcott is in its uh, 120s and you're in your 40s. And yeah. me and my decline, that Nelcott, in its uh, new prime it's still marching yeah. on we're going in opposite directions that's very poetic
1: yeah thank you yeah but it's it's really i really love i have to tell you i really love old houses and i really love old oak trees for some reason because i i imagine that they've witnessed so much you know me and my little life that's it's it's like a blink of an eye, and it's gone, you know, I'm coming in, and I'm leaving. But but these houses, or these trees, you know, they've experienced so much. And yeah, I wrote that line, you know, Nelkata is now 120 years old. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it marches on. And I, I, I have no idea when that story will end, you know, uh, unless it rambles down from the top of its limestone cliff into the Mediterranean. You no, know, it will be there forever. Yes. While I'm, <laughs> you know, gone. And it's a sort of a poetic thing about that because I, I love this place so much because I just hope that somebody will take care of it, you know, in the decades to come.
0: Yes, well I would imagine it will. Anyway, yeah. yes, I know. The, the oak tree, we we love the oak. The English oak <laughs> is quite <laughs> symbolic, isn't it, in our country. So there you go. But look yeah. This has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for this, and I'll um I can send you the link to the interview when I put it up. Just to just to check, how do you pronounce your name so I don't completely wreck it? Is it
1: Geir uh, Geir Hernes.
0: Hernes, right? You can say
1: Geir Geir Yes, there you go. Us, us English uh, are yeah, so good it, with it, language. It, well, it, I really. I really messed up that, that Nazi thing. I think I, I, I'm i not sure I really made any sense there. Uh, do you think <laughs> um, I, I got lost in the details, really? But is there anything you want me to repeat?
0: No, no, I think that was absolutely all fine. And um, it was fascinating okay. and, and it was great. But I, I can send you the link. And um, I mean, it's going. It, and, and with the book, you can get it on your website, can't you? And um...
1: Yes. And and the gallery in Paris.
0: And the gallery in Paris was that a collaboration you did you with
1: it? The... To... No, it was this gallery in Paris is where Dominique Terle is re- represented through them. Right. So it's 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 not his gallery, but his work is uh, sold through that gallery, sort of an mm-hmm. exclusive thing, more or less, uh, and. Since they helped me, I help them by, you know, selling my book. For they, they get a profit from it. Yes. So it's just a just a natural thing. And eventually, I will set up some things. Have you heard about Snap Gallery in in London?
0: No, Snap Gallery. No.
1: I, I haven't set it up yet, so you don't have to mention it. But I'm I'm working on two place two other places to to sell the book.
0: Oh, fantastic! Um, and is Dominic's so book? The, is Dominic's book also available via that gallery then, his other book, if he's got another book?
1: Yeah, it's it's a red book and it's called La Villa.
0: Oh. Ah,
1: La right. Villa. I can send you this info.
0: Oh, excellent. Do. That would be magic and that would be handy actually as well. So there you go. But that's good. Okay, well, that's brilliant. And yeah, I think it all sounded fine. It all sounded good to me. So um there you go thank you for this
1: this has been that's that's wonderful (laughs) (laughs) okay wonderful uh and please just um just if you need anything you just tell me
0: i will i will but thanks a lot and um look have a great midwinter christmas and everything and um warm in Norway and we'll try and keep warm in the UK but look thank you ever so much this has been amazing yeah and really appreciate that you you know the book and everything that um it's an amazing story and an amazing album so there you go but look I'll let you go but thanks again
1: oh yeah most definitely take care
0: see you bye 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 bye. and that dear listener is the end of the interview a massive thank you to Jerry for forgive me that talking about his book about Ville Nelcot. um Yes, the quality. Well, he was in a cupboard, in a small cupboard, in Norway. So it's sometimes a bit hit and miss. So there you go. It was the middle of winter. So uh, the internet connection was generally good, but occasionally would be a little bit gloopy. But anyway, that's life. Anyway, this was the C86 Show. I'm David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.